0: for tuning in to episode 64 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program That is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com and there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that is pathbackrecovery.com. This is a special edition of the virtual couch. The date that I'm recording this intro is June 27th, 2018. It is still dark outside. But uh, I wanted to record this on the day. Today is National PTSD Awareness Day. So with that said, I wanna tell you a little bit more about my guest today a guest who is, he is absolutely passionate about spreading the word about the need to talk about mental health issues, including PTSD or anxiety or depression. And just, he has a goal to destigmatize the negativity around seeking help for mental health issues. Primarily, he's in the military or wh- he's a retired military and in the military where the stigma can be at its highest, but where the need can often be greatest due to what many of our men and women in the military experience primarily, or especially during their time of war, but if you know, if you've heard anything about PTSD, that it can be from anything. It can be from traumatic events, car crashes. It can be from um, it can be from sexual trauma. It can be from emotional trauma, anything that uh, that that kind of brings this heightened state of awareness. And we're, let me well, I'll get to that. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But let me tell you first about my guest. My guest is Jeff Adamick, and he is the host of the Changing Hearts and Minds podcast, which can be found on the change your point of view podcast network and i'll include this info in the show notes but changeyourpov.com is the website where you can find all of the change your point of view podcasts and there are a lot of them and they they all they're amazing very uh, military themed and I binged on a lot of Jeff's and his Changing Hearts and Minds podcast. And it's, it's hard not to just go from one to the other. You don't have to have served in the military to, to find them interesting. I mean, absolutely fascinating. And Jeff does an amazing job with the guests and with his take, his point of view on all things military related, whether it's uh, how he, what that's like for, for his family, wh- where there's deployment, you name it, he has a podcast for it. But let me tell you about Jeff. Um, Jeff is a retired member of the U.S. Army Special Forces, and Jeff began his service as a medic in the 82nd Airborne Division before moving on to be a Ranger medic in the 2nd Ranger Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. In 1999, Jeff was selected into the U.S. Army Special Forces, which is – it is a tremendous – a big deal. Jeff talks a little bit about this uh, – almost this funneling process to get down to those people who do make it into Special Forces, and it is a very, very elite um, group of, of people. And he became a Special Forces Weapons Non-Commissioned Officer. He has six total combat tours to Iraq and Afghanistan. And Jeff has been awarded a Silver Star, four Bronze Stars, uh, Army Accommodation Medal with a V device for valor, and a Purple Heart. And then after 18 years of active duty as a Sergeant First Class, Jeff medically retired in 2013. And he talks about that incident that led to his retirement dur- during our interview. And it's uh, that's one of those moments where it's just, it's, it's just hard for... You know, those of us who maybe haven't served or or been in that kind of a situation to just even try to wrap our heads around what that must have been like. And he, he goes into detail on that in the interview. Jeff now lives in North Carolina with his wife of over 20 years and their two children. And Jeff spends his free time doing veterans awareness and outreach through public speaking and his podcast. And I got to be honest, Jeff was one of those, I'm going to swing for the fences guests who I reached out to not even expecting to hear back from him. And he immediately got back to me and he was willing to come on the podcast and share a story. And a little bit before we recorded and then after we recorded, uh, just what a nice guy willing to come on whenever we have anything that... Uh, might be military-related or PTSD-related or mental health-related. He just is passionate about wanting to, to spread the word about um, talking about mental illness. Now, it, let me geek out a little bit here. In the podcast, I referenced an article written by Dr. Blair Kano, and she's a United States Navy veteran, and she's a licensed psychologist working in Colorado Springs, Colorado, but she, there's an article that Jeff had linked to in one of his podcasts that I will link to in mine where she just describes PTSD. And I thought she did such a nice job. I, I, I talk about it in the podcast briefly, but I wanna, I wanna lay this out here before we jump into the interview. So you'll kind of have a frame of reference when we're talking about t- PTSD. So here's how Dr. Blair Kano described PTSD. So when we are confronted with a life-threatening event, the body reacts with a state of hyperarousal. And that is designed to protect us against this threat. So hyperarousal, hyperfocus, hypervigilance. This response, and here's the this, the, the, the part that uh, I think starts to really make sense of what is happening in our brain. The response increases the release of these stress-related neurotransmitters and hormones. And uh, for maybe the the medical um, crowd that's listening, such as it's corticotrophin, um, the corticotrophin releasing factor or CRF, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, we hear a lot about those, and these endogenous uh, benzodiazepines, endogenous opiates, these are all of these stress related neurotransmitters and hormones that are released when we are confronted with a life threatening event. So this response has been found in uh, tons of studies dating back into the late 1990s is when this we really kind of started to understand more about what was happening in the brain. So these neurotransmitters and hormones are part of this complex feedback loop in the body and the brain that controls our reaction to stress. So the release of these neurotransmitters and then their effect on this part of the brain called the amygdala, which has to do with fear and memory, initiates, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, the fight, flight, or freeze response. So again, confronted with life-threatening event, all of these stress-releasing neurotransmitters and hormones kind of kick into gear and, and then they affect this part of the brain, the amygdala, that initiates the fight, flight, or freeze. So this response is natural and it's, it's protective. But here's the, here's the deal. It's typically time-limited. So the fight, flight, or freeze is going to hype up, and then it, it's designed to have a relatively quick recovery and stabilization, kind of back to a baseline. So what Dr. Kano talks about is people who develop PTSD, they have an exaggerated and a perpetual response, so kind of always in this, uh, this state of hyperarousal. So essentially, people with PTSD remain in this hyperalert state most of the time rather than experience this recovery period where the central nervous system returns to baseline. So the anxiety that's not only associated P- with PTSD, but anxiety disorders in general. And so it, then it becomes this kind of this vicious cycle. So the more that someone is triggered, the more their brain kind of stays in this state of hyperarousal, and it doesn't come back to this baseline. And so then when there are other triggers around the house or in your life then your, your body is already working from this, this heightened state of hyperarousal with these chemicals that are already into play. And now over time, even those chemicals start to impair uh, the, the, the cognitive processing of the brain. So um, we'll get into that a little bit in the interview. But Jeff's I'm going to link to Jeff's podcast in the show notes as well as this article I just referenced by Dr. Kano. But I just want to say how grateful I am, and I mean this about those who serve or have served in the military. I have a grandfather who was in that uh, storm, the beaches of Normandy, and who received a Purple Heart. And I have a brother who served as a nuke on a fast attack sub who died many, many years uh, far too young. And I've had the opportunity to work with clients who are active duty or who are veterans, and I've been fortunate enough to help several young clients pursue a career in the military, even when they were afraid to tell their parents, because they had a fear of their parents not being supportive. And I can tell you that in every one of those situations, when the young man or young woman was able to really share their truths or speak from the heart about why they wanted to serve, that it was a positive experience – And so for those who have served, those are currently serving, for those who will someday serve our country, I I truly want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I often look at the stats of my podcast, and I can literally see a map of the world and the countries where the podcast is downloaded. And I know it reaches places where there aren't these freedoms that we have in our country. And I know those freedoms come with a price. So truly, thank you. And I don't want to take away from how powerful this interview with Jeff is. Oh, and a reminder that this is an interview that is on YouTube if you want to see if you want to see Jeff in, in action, as well as on the Virtual Couch YouTube channel. That, that's where it's at. And uh, note to self, I'm going to include that link as well. But also in an effort to keep the podcast going, please bear with me for just a tiny bit of business. I'll, I'll jump through this quickly. If you have the fast forward on your podcast app, you can hit the old 15 seconds a couple of times here. But I appreciate every one of you has already done so. But if you can take a moment to visit TonyOverbay.com and sign up to receive more information on upcoming programs on marriage. Marriage, on parenting, on anger management. And I promise your email address will never be sold and the amount of email you receive will be very minimal. But please take a moment to subscribe or rate or review the podcast if you like it, wherever you go to listen to your podcast. And you can follow The Virtual Couch now on Instagram at virtualcouch or on Twitter at couchvirtual. And please feel free to send me your comments, guest suggestions, etc., to contact at tonyoverbay.com. And there are three sponsors that, have, uh, that I wanna just give a, a quick amount of love to. Please visit bloomforwomen.com. Bloom offers online programs, expert help in an empathetic community to help women heal, strengthen, and grow past the trauma of infidelity and betrayal whether it's betrayal from a spouse who may have a pornography or sex addiction or from the emotional betrayal of an affair. So please visit bloomforwomen.com You can use the coupon code virtualcouch, all one word, for one month free access to their evidence-based programs and their community designed to help heal and recover from betrayal trauma. And if you listen to any of my previous episodes on the Virtual Couch, you know that Eli's Extracts has been with, with me since episode one. Eli's makes an all-natural organic shave cream so visit elis-extracts.com and use Coupon code virtual couch for 25% off your entire order of their all natural organic shade cream scented with essential oils. And one more last episode, I introduced an app called Captain Money Pants, and the feedback has been just hilarious uh, and fantastic, primarily because of this line that I shared from the CaptainMoneyPants.com website. The Money Pants app is a tool for parents who want to teach their kids to work for what they get. I I can just leave it at that. Teaching their kids to work for what they get. The amount of feedback I receive from that kind of says that I think a lot of parents are a little bit frustrated with uh, knowing how to um help kind of develop this work ethic. So uh visit captainmoneypants.com or check out the money pants app wherever you get your favorite apps. Okay, thanks again for joining me and now on to my interview with Jeff Adamick. We did you did six tours of combat. I mean you've been away from home um
1: I don't know years of time yeah, it would, it would. I mean, altogether it would be years uh, as special operations guys. We, we don't get deployed for more than six to eight months at a clip Okay. where you're all these horror stories of guys getting deployed for 18 months and everything that they do. It's and that must suck. OK, but them guys only leave and go on missions uh, once every couple of weeks. They build mission packets and have jobs to do and normally are guarding something or where the special operations guys, we're, we're going out every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, to hit high-value targets, to, to talk to locals, to drive around the countryside. So that high op tempo and that intensity um, has to be mi- mitigated somehow with, with our, you know, our wanting to be there. So we, we have shorter deployments more often. So, okay. so this is deployments about six months in, six months home, six months in, six months home, kind of like that rotation. Okay.
0: Here's the, the lamest question then, and then we will get to the good stuff. But I'm, I'm always fascinated by when people are uh, so far away from home. I mean, and I'm, I'm a big food guy. I mean, what did you miss the most? What did you crave?
1: Did you, you know, when you get home, what do you eat first? Oh man. Uh, so first of all, obviously they don't have fast food like we do over there. Right. And you realize quickly how addicted to fast food you are. Okay. because You, you, you start craving like cheeseburgers and, and yeah, you can make them there, but they don't taste the same. The, the meat's different. It's pro- process differently yeah. uh, when i came back the first thing i wanted and honest to god was the coldest beer i could get my hands on okay like the ice coldest beer and just one not not like get drunk but just one ice cold beer was actually like it was almost like drinking nectar of the gods to me because it, it was so so long since i had had it okay and, and, and almost every deployment was like that
0: yeah and then from a fast food standpoint i mean what was what did you miss the most
1: i was I, I used to really love uh double quarter pounders with cheese <laughs> okay so uh I would say used to, because I try not to, can't eat them as much now that I'm not as, uh, as active as I used to be. So I have to watch it, but man, I would scarf like two, three of those down at a time. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, sorry
0: that I had, I, I, I'm dying to ask that. Now, is the food good there? I mean, are you eating, uh, or I know it's is not bad.
1: Ranch? It's not yeah. bad. I mean, it, it, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the food in those two places is, is actually much different from each other, just as oh. much as it's different from us. Um, the Afghani local food is, is phenomenal. What I mean, is it? What kind of food is that? uh they they make a lot of stuff in pressure cookers so they they'll do stuff it's like this stew where they they take pretty much like a block of lard tomatoes <laughs> potatoes and some sort of meat and they throw in this pressure cooker and they and they cook it up for like 20 minutes and then they pour it over rice and oh, and then you eat it with like the flatbread that they the unleavened flatbread that they had there and god it it's to this day if if there was a place that opened up in the United States that sold that stuff. I would go out of my way to get it. It was actually- Would you really?
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, pressure cooker, I now learned, actually, there's a big Instapot craze in America. I had no idea that all that is, is a pressure cooker,
1: right? So- uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much all it is. <laughs>
0: um, all right. Hey, so I'm grateful that you're on here. I, I, I want to get to some of the um, topics around PTSD, but I'm really fascinated by, I have to admit, I'm a, I'm a bit of a junkie on, um, I love audiobooks and I love listening to any audiobook that has anything to do with- uh, missions to, to Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, Army Rangers, uh, Navy SEALs. And, mm-hmm. I, and I find that a lot of the clients I work with, you know, those of us who have never served, I mean, I, I don't know if we're just kind of living vicariously there or always want to think that, yeah, I would have been doing that stuff too, you know, even though uh, we, we, we obviously didn't. Um, but a, a theme I often hear is that, you know, a lot of people that have kind of done what you have done had almost felt like a calling or knew from a, a very young age, that's what you wanted to do. Was that was that your case?
1: i knew from a very young age i wanted to serve in the military okay Uh, it was um i always had a desire to be somehow affiliated with the military from a young age i come from a a law enforcement family in new jersey so uh serving and working in in law enforcement military is something that my family has gone back for years um and to be honest with you and this is always something that's really funny i wanted to join the marines why did i want to join the marines because of the movie aliens not because of some, not because of some other movie. It was right. seeing the colonial Marines in the second aliens movie. I was like, I want to be those guys. Cause those guys weren't afraid of anything. I mean, this one monster who my yeah. childhood was centered around as what the most scariest thing in the world, these guys went in and fought this thing. So I'm like, th- that's, if that's what Marines are, that's what I want to be. I ended up be, wanting to be a medic in the, in the military. So when I went to the Marines in high school and asked them to join as a medic, they informed me that only their, me- their medics only come from the Navy. Oh, wow. and I was I was not joining the Navy. I had no desire to be on a boat. OK, um, so I changed my I ended up having to change and I went to the army and and I think it was for the better. to okay. be honest.
0: I love that. I did not see aliens coming as the movie you were going to reference. I'm going back yeah, to yeah. Well, any full metal jacket, you know, right. Aliens, right? OK, and
1: um, I, like I tell people, all the time, I don't want to lie about it. I know it's kind of geeky, but it's it's the truth. I wanted to be Hudson and Hicks from Aliens as much <laughs> as not, dead, obviously, but I wanted to be right. the, that kind of person.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure that, I mean, boy, we're going to get to the PTSD stuff, but that alien is actually the very first uh, scary movie. I think my parents ever took me to ironically uh, in North Carolina when I was far too young. And uh, so I, to this day, remember the, I think it was alien coming out of the stomach or whatever that was. And you know, I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then, so when did you, when did you enlist? What was
1: that process like? I enlisted early in my senior year of high school in 1995, Uh Uh, signed up for delayed entry. Uh, I had intent. Uh, I went to a performing arts high school, believe it or not, and oh, wow. I, I had I had been in the application process for for new, for NYU and for Juilliard, and wow. things were looking good. But my parents, you know, they they didn't see any future in it, as parents do, yeah. And so they informed me that even if I got in, that, that uh, I would have to come up with some way to pay for it.
0: Well, and what and was so I had
1: already been? Talking? Were you right. an
0: actor? Were you actor, singer, dancer? I mean, what were you? a Triple threat? Yes. What, what, okay. Yes. Yes. All of the above.
1: I, I started out in the program as an actor, but I had, had to learn how to sing and dance. Ended up being singing was the main thing that I did. Uh, I was very highly trained in like classical singing and, and choral singing. Uh-huh. And uh, one of the schools I actually applied to was West, Westminster Music College, but there was no way I was getting in there. I was not that good, so...
0: Okay, and I probably now we, we got to do a, a tiny ADD jaunt here. So um, I just had an actress on Aurora Florence to kind of talk about when people want to be actors or actresses, and there isn't you know that uh, parental support often because there is that you can't make a career out of it that sort of thing. So um, I do want to know what 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 were your favorite roles in high school? Did you have any of the big ones?
1: Uh, yeah, no, I I was uh, I actually went to high school with. If you ever seen like Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, yeah, 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 The, the character. Uh, Kumar character, Cal Penn. I went to high school, graduated with him. Me, me and him graduated the same class. Oh, wow. um, so we did, we did a lot of uh, musical theater. And okay. so I, I'm, and growing up in New Jersey in that community, it, it's different. It's a different world there than it is everywhere else. You know, musical theater is kind of a, it's a sideshow or a, or a very rare uh, alternate type of culture to everyone else in the world, other than people in London and New York area, apparently. Okay. Uh, so I was really, really into musical theater, things like Les Rob, Phantom of the Opera, I love those shows and um yeah I did a couple I did I think I played the main the ma- the male lead in anything goes my senior year of high school okay um, and it's a female lead show led but the male lead himself that, that was that was my character
0: okay but and what I love already is like uh you know I do a lot of stuff around like men's issues and a lot of this uh you know um the, this stereotype of it yeah I mean you hear that you army ranger special forces the, you know 18 mm-hmm. years and and deployed and all this and so I, I you know you uh that you are uh, vulnerable enough to kind of say, hey, I was a theater guy growing up. I love
1: Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not even vulnerable. I, I say it with pride. I, I okay, good.
0: No, I like that. Well, I work with teenage boys who want to do that that sort of thing, and then they feel like the right. there's a negative stereotype with that. So, no. Well, well
1: there is. I mean, like, there is there is a cultural negative stereotype to that kind of thing as far as the masculine alpha male. Right. but. I mean, come on, Robert De Niro, these guys, like these guys grew up in the theater and these guys are the male vision of manliness as far as our culture is concerned. And people forget that, you know, Sylvester Stallone isn't Rambo. Sylvester Stallone is a very talented writer who ended up being an actor.
0: Yeah. Uh, John Travolta dancing. I mean, all that stuff. Right. Um, Okay. So then you, you enlist, uh, then you, you're going, you wanted to be a medic. uh, Don't want to go into the Navy. um, So now you choose, when did you, when do you make the decision that you want to be a ranger? How does that whole process work?
1: Oh, that was a long process because I, oh. I had, when I talked to the recruiters, they, you know, how the recruiters are. They want to show you, they, they very quickly realized that I was the kind of guy looking for some kind of adventure and some kind of higher level. Now, to be honest, I was very unsure of myself in my high school, just as most high school kids are, but I was even beyond that. I, I was very self conscious and had low self esteem at best. Okay. Um, so I looked at like Rangers and, and Green Berets, and I was just like most people are. My vision of Ranger and Green Braves were Rambo, yeah, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger, guys like this—the the '80s version of of this job—and I was like, I'm not that guy. Um, mm. I'd love to be that guy. I'd want to be that guy, but let me let me settle down my my what I can do and the most I can get myself to do, and even it's still a big deal, but was to go airborne and be in the 82nd. Okay, so I joined on an airborne contract and went to the 82nd. And by the time I made it to the 82nd after basic training in airborne school and AIT, I had felt like I could do more. And it was just a little bit of enough confidence boost for me to apply to go to the Ranger Battalion and through their selection process. Okay. Still at that point, if you told me I was going to be a Green Beret one day, I'd have told you no. Getting through that in Ranger school gave me the confidence then to go on to go to selection for being a Green Beret. So everything I was successful at in the military just gave me enough confidence to start chasing down that pinnacle of what i thought i was always chasing down with the next challenge and the next dream and the more i did the more i realized i can do anything as long as i really was willing to apply myself and not quit
0: okay and i like the concept there but i think if people say i I would like to be a green beret but i can't see myself doing that i'm a big fan of uh that's looking at from point a to z so you went to b which is 82nd airborne b to c Mm -hmm. uh, going to ranger school so just uh why not take the next step
1: yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I the long road, the long okay, road right. to my goals. So, uh, is which it, is good. Uh, I need I was. I was 17 when I joined. I needed to grow up and mature anyway. It, it, the first four years I was in that individual being in SF or special forces would have been a disaster for special forces. Okay. I, I was the young, immature. Co- I was very much every other college-aged frat boy mentality guy that that's out there today, and it's, I just think it's just sometimes I think that maturity comes with your goals. You may have goals early on in life for something that is very immature as far as like being a green beret in the army, which uh-huh. isn't immature. But as far as the world is concerned, looking at someone who whose life is warfare, yeah, uh, it's, it seems like an immature lifestyle and something that young people do. Okay. But believe it or not, it's something that, that takes a lot of mental maturity and mental and worldliness and, and ability to t- talk to people because gr- green berets are not what people think they are. Uh, they're, they're far more Political and strategic than than the average uh, military movie right. depiction of what we are. Okay, and I gotta, I, you know, of course, I would never
0: break any types of confidentiality, but I've had a chance to work with a few people that have been in those kind of positions, and and mm-hmm. I, I I love what you're saying that I never realized. Um, I mean, the the amount of training it's around everything, right? Because you could be yeah. out in in somewhere and stuck, and it could be a long period of time, and you have to know. I mean, basically, you have uh, what all kinds of skills from medical and uh, strategic. You have
1: to know everything, right? A little bit of everything. Well, yeah. we'd like to say that we're 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 not experts in anything, but we're we're masters we're masters in a little bit of everything. So we're kinda like uh, the opposite of an Olympic athlete who's very, very good at one specific task. Yeah. Uh, we are we are or they're an expert and like the best at one specific task. We're above average at everything with no specific task honed down. That way we can morph and go right and left. Any okay. one of the guys that I know in group that were in group or in Green could have been an Olympic athlete. If they wow. had taken their time to focus on one thing, but because of the road, the road that we take, we've taken it, we get a broader view of stuff. So we never really get to the point where we're the best at anything. We're just a really good above average individual at
0: many things. Do you think that can be, um, learned or do you feel like, and here's where my train of thought when I was in computer software, uh, I went to a trade show in um, Boston, Massachusetts one time. And I remember we went into a Brookstone or one of those stores has a little bit of all, all all kinds of things. So I immediately make my way to the massage chair. And then all the computer programmers are trying to figure out the puzzles and things. Mm -hmm. And you're right Right then knowing, okay, that's a different, uh, the the brain type. They wanted to fix everything. They wanted to take everything apart. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like what you're saying is it, it needs to be somebody that's part MacGyver, part medic, part, you know, Olympic athlete, uh, a good, you know, somebody that's amazing with, uh, with a firearm. I mean, is, so does it, can you learn all of that, or do you feel like the people that you worked with kind of
1: had a little bit of that going in? Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to say that there's there's something that you're born with that makes you that kind of person. Um, mm. And generally, I think to have the mentality or the or the the men- the mental illness to want to go do that kind of work, um, mm. jokingly, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you have to be a certain person. You have to be born a certain way or have experiences. You know, nature versus nurture. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I do believe you can be taught it, but I think that if you're somebody that has to be absolutely perfect at whatever they're focused on and mm. can't multitask and can't, you know, and, and some people know that from a young age. And those are the of yeah. people who focus on, on soul projects. Uh, you have to be able to identify the fact that maybe you're, you're not going to be successful or it's going to be a, a longer and harder road for you because you have to break that, that internal desire to, I got to be perfect at this, right? You got to be like, I'm good enough at this. So I've got to keep my eyes open to the situation and be able to adjust to everything while I'm still getting my job done, maybe not at the level I want to, but good enough for me to be able to maintain situational awareness. Okay. So it's, it's learned. They, t- they do teach it to you, but uh, like I've seen guys who were just great, great athletes just could not interact with human beings on a, on a level that was needed for special forces and could not understand why they just weren't, they were like, how are you? You're not as fast or as strong as me. I'm like, but I don't blow everyone off and I can talk to people. Like okay. so, there is different skills that are applicable.
0: Yeah, so. yeah. Was it a pretty, uh, you know, was a pretty big funnel? I mean, were, were there a lot of people that went into the program, and then by it the, was it a big yes. thing out process? It, it,
1: according to the song, one hundred men gets whittled down to three. Um, wow. As everyone's heard, you know, one hundred men will test today, only three get the green brace. So it's about three percent of the starters who finish. I could put it to you this way: my selection class had one hundred and fifty candidates in it. 92 finished, 71 got selected. Out of that 71, 25 finished the Q course, got their Green Berets and went on to, to work in the community. So wow. 150 down to 25. And, and then that number, because of the war, narrowed down because of casualties or, or burnouts or people who got to the unit and didn't, just didn't fit in. They're always assessing you in Special Forces. Just because you're there with the Green Beret doesn't mean that they can't just take it from you and kick you out. Okay, I think you're no longer what they need or what they need you to do. Yeah, and it becomes about you and not about the team and about the mission. They will move you on because it's 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 a necessity and a harsh reality, but it's a, ne- a necessary reality. Okay,
0: and, and you know, and I'm and I'm going to go over. I'm sure in the intro, I went over this. So your 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 bio is just amazing. Six tours of combat to both Iraq and Afghanistan, where you conducted special operations missions. Um, I mean, was it? Uh, special operations missions. I mean, too, too many to count. I mean, was that something that was just constant mission after mission?
1: Yeah, I would say that. I mean, my, my very, so my only deployments to combat were as a green beret, um, okay. even as a ranger, which I was beforehand, I was a ranger in the peacetime army. Okay. Um, so I was in the Q course when nine 11 happened. So okay. I graduated from the Q course, the first graduating class after nine 11 and my what? first deployment was the invasion of Iraq, which, you know, obviously there was still a time where I was going through school, so I didn't get into the invasion of Afghanistan, but the invasion of Iraq. And from the, from the time I hit the ground, uh, there is no end state to special operations, uh, non-kinetic, unconventional warfare. As soon as you're done completing whatever mission you're on, you have to start assessing how that affects the, the landscape and the, the political landscape and the strategic landscape of, the, of what you're in. You've got to be able to balance back political friendly political side with the effects on the local populace uh, there there's a constant state of action uh-huh. an assessment of that action and a reaction to how to how to deal with the fallout or the changes that occur um even beyond you know mission accomplished if, yeah. if you will um there is no mission accomplished when you're talking about uh, special operations on a global so it's, it's always moving, yeah. Well, it's do over. you remember? And
0: I was going to ask you, uh, and I, you mentioned nine eleven. Um, so you were at Q School. What do you? What was that like when you heard? I mean, when you heard that uh, what happened? I mean, was that you knew then at that moment that it was going to change what your whole mission was? Well, when, once we realized what
1: was going on, yes, yes, yeah. it was made very clear to us. So we're out at Camp McCall, and we're we're isolated in the woods for that training. It's it's small unit tactics training for Green Berets out at Camp McCall by ourselves. We were getting ready to go out in a three day field problem. So, we were getting ready to leave the wire and go sleep in the woods for three days. Mm. Everyone had just eaten breakfast. And while we're picking up our our MREs to to load in our bags, one of the guys comes running out of the chow hall there and says, Hey, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. Now, being from New York, I was like, I was like, okay, what was like a Cessna? A Cessna, like clip it or something? And he's like, No, it looked like an airliner. And I'm like, There should be no flight traffic through the center of the city like that. And then 10 minutes later, somebody else came out and said, Another plane hit. Uh, we had Syngars radios, the military uh, airborne airborne uh, satellite radios. Mm-hmm. One of the guys that was in my little small group was a radio operator from, from another unit who knew how to pick up uh, NBC and CBS on on uh, open channel. So mm-hmm. we listened to everything that whole day. I never saw the images that everyone else saw on 9-11 ever live or the ones that never played again. I never got to see them. My wife always tells me that there were things that just were shocking. And, and I know I've heard about them, but I never saw it. I, I had no idea for 35 days wow. after 9-11. I had no idea what you guys were seeing on TV. All I knew is what I heard about.
0: Yeah. We were so isolated. So at that point then, you know, what did all of the training kind of go specific to you? You knew you were heading over there. I mean, before that, what would where would you deploy? I mean, or what was kind of the talk?
1: Well, Green Berets at that point where were, they were like foreign internal defense, uh, national security mission profiles. So we would go to like to Africa and do you know, joint missions with other, other countries to in, improve their militaries. And that, that's okay. what Green Berets do in peacetime. Okay. Uh, we knew, we knew right away that it was going to change. Um, there were guys who knew that they were at the beginning of their training. It was going to be two years. They quit on the spot to go back to their old units because they wanted to get to war fast. Uh, unfortunately, they ended up being put on gate guard. And oh. after I got back from Iraq, three and a half years later, they were still on gate guard waiting to get orders to go back to their wow. unit. And I'm like, hey, How'd that work out for you? Yeah, um, yeah. going back yeah. to the unit, you quit, and now you're here still. Yeah. Uh, so there, there was a lot of change in the in the focus, the mentality. The the I mean, there was a massive instructor issue because so many of them instructors wanted to get back to their units, and they oh, I got to leave, I got to get back to this group or that group. And it's like, no man, you've got to train these guys to go to war. And yeah. it, it, so it was very. Very weird. After being in the military, 10 years. I spent 10 years in a peacetime army. Uh-huh. Uh, one day, one day completely changed the entire culture and landscape of the military as I knew it. I feel like it was two separate militaries I was in. Wow. And it really was. Okay.
0: Yeah, and then so then how long after 9-11 then was it that then you were, you were deployed and you were
1: on a mission? In 2003, okay. uh, I had I, arrived in late 2002 to my unit, which is 3rd Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg. Mm. Uh, they had just gotten back from the initial invasion of Afghanistan. They were ramping up for the invasion of Iraq. We, you know, everyone knew it long before it happened. What was coming? Um, we got sent overseas to Romania to stage in case we had to go in. And that stage turned into a launch. And and uh, ten days before the ground war kicked off, as all you guys knew it, I was I was already in the desert, in northern Iraq. You know, mm. avoiding avoiding Iraqi Republican Guard forces who had tried to shoot us out of the air, you know, rightfully so, when we invaded 10 days before So, So, um, so what is that like?
0: I mean, I mean, when you're all of a sudden it's real, right? I mean, you're, you're in a desert, you're evading, um, people trying to to shoot at you. I mean, what is that, what is that like when that really kind of sinks in?
1: It I, you know, it didn't really sink into much, much later. I think at the time, at the time there were, there were moments of reality of what was going on, but I tell people this a lot is that war As cliche as it sounds, is massive amounts of boredom. Wow. Sprinkled in with moments of excitement and terror. Wow. And so it's, you know, when you're, it's not like in the movies where you hit the ground and from the time you hit, you're, you're clandestinely moving and and always on the run or always moving silently to some location. Uh, if, if I dropped a special operations team, you know, two miles outside of a Kansas high school right now. Yeah. And they didn't, have any idea they were there who would be looking for them to know that they were there so the you can see how where there's like you're kind of sitting there like does anyone know we're here okay i mean even when we finally got engaged with after the ground war kicked off and we finally engaged in the the battle of the becca pass and we finally engaged with the the, uh, iraqi republican guard their commander had no idea there was a ground war he thought it was just an air war so even they were they were in the dark so iraq was the, the invasion of iraq was a little misleading for me we we kind of kicked the ass and took over so fast that I didn't really get what it was like to have an opposition force actually have a little bit of sway over you. Gotcha. It wasn't until I got to Afghanistan and they started ambushing us. And then the insurgency built and the way that the war changed there in the middle that I really got what it's like to fight a war on a, on level ground face to face people, you know, not, not yeah. being the big boys in the block, just rolling over everyone. Yeah, it's, it's a hard lesson when you're when you're the you can say bully or you're the badass or you're the, you're the, the savior. And then uh-huh. all of a sudden somebody using something like as simple as hit and run tactics or not applying your your power or your self perceived superiority. They just don't they don't care whether we say yeah. we're the best or not. They're going to fight us on their level and they, they're effective at it when they do it right.
0: Okay. Well, I think maybe that starts to lead into the concept of PTSD as well. On your uh website for your podcast, which I, I love and I, I listened to I binge listened and uh and uh oh so, yeah and I'm 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 excited to kind of get my audience heading that way. Um but you had a link so am know. I. Send them, send them. I'm, I'm I will, absolutely, to get them. right? Change your point of view. I mean we will we, it's a it's a great podcast. Um but yeah, and I, what I love is on your notes you have a whole lot of links to articles and things that you talk about in the episodes. And there was one that I, it was, uh, it's from a Dr. Blair Kano on, um, cognitive impairment and the neurological basis for PTSD. And so I just thought if you're mm-hmm. okay, if I just read this paragraph, cause then I want to kind of put it in context for what you were going through. Um, That's I love nice. how she said this, uh, uh, she said when confronted with a life threatening event, the body reacts with a state of hyper arousal designed to protect humans against the threat. Um, This response increases the release of stress-related neurotransmitters and hormones. And then she goes into a whole lot of them, what they are, uh, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, benzodiazepines, all of these things that are going on in your brain. And it said, this response has been found um, dating back to numerous studies in the 90s and kind of a lot of references there. But this is what I think she put out well. These neurotransmitters and hormones are part of a complex feedback loop in the body and brain that controls our reaction to stress. Um, Then it talks about the release of these neurotransmitters on the brain, the amygdala, and initiating fight or flight. And then I really thought, you know, from a PTSD standpoint says, while this response is a natural and prot- protective response that is typically time limited with a relatively right. quick recovery and stabilization. People who develop PTSD have an exaggerated and perpetual response. Um, what this means is the level of hyper arousal becomes continual and maladaptive. Um, essentially persons with PTSD remain in a hyper alert state most of the time rather than experience a recovery period where the central nervous system returns to baseline. So, I mean, when, when you talk about, you are, you know, I, I, you're in country, you're, you know, you don't even know people are there, you kind of have to always be hyper aware, I would imagine, then all of a sudden, even, even in the boredom, I mean, are you still have to be
1: aware? Well, it, yeah, you, you it's it because they come the moments of boredom, that, that breach into these moments of terror, or these moments of activity, yeah, are so unpredictable at times, that you start to develop this feeling of I'm on, I'm, I'm focused and I'm on target second. I deploy not realizing, and this is something that helped me get through realizing I had PTSD was that your fight or flight, your cortisol, all those norepinephrine, you know, they, they, they turn on to put you in a fight or flight mode, which is hyper awareness, you know, combat focus, you know, all the things you need. And because you're not using it to flight, you're using it to fight. It empowers you. It, it's what your job is. You're you're you become good at it. You're at least surviving, which is you know just like any other kind of adrenaline based uh, junkyism. It's it's something that could be a problem, mm. and then you don't realize that instead of having this fight or flight, this this boost that only gives you a small level of it, you're deploying for six to eight months, and the levels never come down from the acute phase. So wow. much like dopamine in a heroin or a cocaine addict. Yeah. Your body has now developed a new normal for the level that it has to keep these hormones at. Exactly. And when you come home and those hormone levels naturally drop because you're no longer in fight or flight, you suffer the same exact, and if you look at it, it's almost exactly the same symptoms of, you know, dr- long-term drug use yep. addiction, because it's the same exact fundamental processes that are going on in your body. Your body is trying to get itself hyper aware. It's, it's creating its own confusion to try to get you back into fight or flight. Yeah. And that's not what, where you're at. So you're, you're having to come down to a new normal, which is the normal everyone else is at, but you have completely moved past it. So when they have a lot of guys who I got to get back over and when you get back into the fight, it'll make you feel better. It's like giving a heroin addict who's going through withdrawals, uh, you know, a needle full of heroin, just because it's going to make them feel better. Wow. It May not necessarily be the answer. Yeah. The fact that they want to get back to a situation like that because being at home is so hard should be an indicator that they should not go back.
0: Yeah. I have to tell you in, in your, uh, your podcast, a couple of them I listened to even boy, made me think back to their uh, having been able to work with a couple of people that have been, whether it's uh, special forces and Navy SEAL, any of those things. And, and I, you know, I gotta be honest too. Sometimes when they are telling the stories, I mean, I, that is, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm present as a therapist. So that's the first time where I ever feel like all of a sudden I'm just, you know, I'm just like listening because I mean, the stories are amazing and, and all the things they go through. And then I typically am noticing a pattern I, I get as a marriage and family therapist is I'm doing a lot of couples therapy from the person that then comes back. And I still remember the first guy that said, he's like, when I'm out there and he just was saying, I'm this guy, you know, and he's like pointing up in the, the, the sky. He was like, I'm this guy. When I walk into a town, I'm this guy. When I'm over, when I'm overseas, I'm, I'm that guy. And he's like, then I come home and I've got to change diapers. Or I've got my kids are running around or, you know, somebody's like, uh, doesn't do their homework or, you know, some whatever. And he's like, or they get my order wrong at the drive-through. And he's like, I, I still want to be this guy, you know, and that's not working. And, and then, right. you know, then almost like right. depression or some of
1: those kind of things kick in or, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, the proof that absolute, the power will corrupt absolutely because they're not bad people, but right. they need to feel, they need to have that feeling because the dopamine and cortisol and all of their, they create pleasure centers in the brain that, that make you feel better. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a trick to get you through whatever situation you're in so that you don't freeze or freak out. But it's, it's misleading because it's not real. Yeah. Uh, it's a self, it's a self delusional sense of pleasure that creates you into, it can create you into a delusional or a misled monster in, in essence, because you're seeking this they don't hear themselves and there. I got to get back to be this guy. Yeah. You are that guy. You're you're that guy and you're this guy. And that's what makes you as an American soldier so much different is that you can juggle both, but Mm -hmm. you as a person need to recognize that everything has a time limit. And uh, if you start realizing that being over in danger and and being at the front edge of it, not for the sake of American interests or, or protecting people, but for your own self uh, just so you make yourself feel better and for yeah. your own you know, selfish needs, you've got to be able to be man enough to identify that and be able to get help to get you back to a state where, you, I, where you're you know, thinking clearly because you're not thinking clearly when you're in that state. Yeah, It just becomes all about you. And that's not what we are in essence. And we quickly can be drawn away from who we are by that feeling and that need to get back to that spot where we feel like we're the man. Yeah, or, and, I, and then the ironic part
0: you know, as a, as a guy who I'm so grateful for the service that you provide. I mean, I really am. I mean, it's kind of brought this light to me where, man, you know, you almost, you, I'm, you know, we, those of us who don't understand what's going on you know, uh, overseas or when you're on those missions are grateful that you are that guy, you know, because it's right. like, we need that guy to be able to kind of do and carry out the missions that you do. So I, I, yeah, I just can't imagine, um, having to try to come down from that or, or I think there is that thought of where, well, when you guys aren't in, engaged, you know, and you're, you got this downtime about, well, that must be awesome, right? Relaxing and playing cards or whatever. I would watch mash, you know, I mean, that's uh, but it's, you know, you're still that what I love about that article. You're still, you still have to be on your guard. Still have to be hyper-focused. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's so, not
1: even and in, in those situations, it's not even like you decide to be in that situation. Okay. The first few times you get caught not paying attention and something bad happens, your body will quickly learn to keep itself in hyper-focus and conditional and, you know, conditioned responses, conditional learning, getting off that plane in that country will automatically put you in that as a conditioned response to the situation. So that's why it's so bad that the triggers and the, the flashbacks that guys have, something has reminded, not them personally, but reminded their body of that combat situation Mm. and has triggered a landfall of, of responses chemically and mentally. That they're not in control of. And that is why it's so important for us to be able to identify and admit that PTSD is not something that is abnormal. Right, It is a normal response to people being put in abnormal situations for long periods of time. So this whole cultural mindset of it being about cowardice or it's a sign of weakness, I, I completely reject that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about this. I was never afraid. My, my mm. PTSD developed as, as depression and and confusion and, and, and you know, high uh, manic episodes, yeah. but not because I was afraid it was because I wasn't getting what my body was used to. And I was dealing with so many external things that I had buried and not dealt with, you know, manifested in our culture of not wanting to talk about the war and yeah. uh, where it makes war a sense of shame for many soldiers wow. because we want to protect our people. But if you look at all the cultures of warfare, cultures back you know, the Spartans, the Romans, they celebrated war and we don't want to celebrate death, but war itself is celebrating war is a way to get the soldiers to not be ashamed of what they've done. Okay. If we don't talk about it, it becomes a, a thing of shame. So now you've got shame mixed with the desire to go there and then self-hatred and all, it's all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. that piles on that a person who has been taught to not say anything about those feelings yeah. is now just digging their own grave in essence.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to I one of the things I was curious about is as a mental health professional, it's hard enough to break the stigma of just having people come to couples counseling. Um, I mean, so how you know how dif- how difficult is that to have in the military then to have somebody talk about mental health challenges? I mean, do you hear uh, you were out there? Would people talk about their challenges or struggles
1: or no? No. OK, no, absolutely. No. No, and that's part. I mean, I'm just as guilty as anyone else to being one of those guys who was like, what's your problem, man? You know, before I started having all the same feelings and and conditions, and I learned very quickly that, man, there is something that is very well hidden in the military, and that's guys don't want to admit that they're human. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is just some, we're not built. That's why it's so hard to find people who can do what we do. We're not built to live in that kind of you know, mental condition and that experience for long. or wow. not. Yeah. So this is the longest war that the U S has ever been involved in. Um, although we don't have a high death rate, it is a very high casualty rate because many of the people that have survived their injuries would not have in past wars. Oh, so, so now you've got massively disabled people who would have died if it was any other war who are now casualties again for the rest of their lives. Cause they have to relearn to live in society that is not used to seeing a completely burned guy you know yeah. with all of the skin gone who should not have survived what happened to him, but our medical yeah. science is so much better, but we don't have our mental medical science up to speed with our physical mental yeah. you know physical medical science, so we've got this offset we've got yeah, you're alive, but he's not you know in, in, yeah. inside he's dead, and right. we don't let him talk about it we've taught him to not say anything uh, to bury those thoughts to make it a taboo thing to make it about Something that it's not, instead of just saying, hey, look, you're not alone. Every single person on some level, you know, very high or very low, experiences what you're experiencing. And it doesn't make you any different than anyone else. It just makes you human. Wow. So now be a leader, be the person that you are, the warrior that you are, and go out and admit that you need to get help. Go ask for it. You don't have to preach to the world like I do. I'm doing this because we as a society can't come to grips with who we are when we have issues.
0: Yeah. Do you have a lot of people reaching out to you and, and, and and are you the, are you the go-to for a lot of uh, guys in the military who have never talked
1: about it before? Do you get those? I have had people, I get a lot more spouses, spouses and family members who come to me. Um, How do I get them to admit it? And the the sad thing is, is that you can't get them to it. My wife got me, if you, my story in my, the way my story goes, my wife got me to get help. Okay. But not everybody has codependency with their wife. Like I do with mine. You know, my wife tells me to, to lay down and, and, you know, cut the grass in my teeth. I'm probably going to do it. Okay. But that's our dynamic, you know? So that's, that's how our, our, you know, and she was able to get, get me to realize there was something wrong very soon into my, my, my issues. And I was still I was still aware enough at the time to recognize that this is the one person in the entire world. I trust above everyone else. She says, I need to get some help. I need to get some help because I already, I I was, I knew that when the military is over, it keeps rolling on, and you're stuck with just you and your family. Uh-huh. A lot of guys think that the military is always going to be there. It always, they, they, so they put their family aside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was lucky enough not to have that mentality. I, my family came first to me all the time. So I think that a lot of people want to get someone help, so they ask. And the, yeah. the bottom line is, is it's got to come from the person who is – we have to internally change our own point of view yeah we can't change so, somebody else's
0: so do you feel like that that do you feel like that needs to come then from within the military i mean is that where you feel ultimately that would be the most beneficial i mean you're doing what you I can
1: think do it's, the most, it's the most necessary right now i think yeah. it's situationally and emergency wise it's the most necessary yeah but i think as a culture we need to start it from way back in from in our houses the way we learn yeah. the way we talk about things um stereotyping people you know the crazy guy down the street who's been seen too much war right a crazy guy down the street is just, was a normal guy before he saw too much war yeah and you know what i mean so it's there's all kind we have to culturally change but right now right now with the 22 plus a day that are committing suicide and yeah. all the issues that we're having we need to address it from the inside inside the actual culture the military guys the military culture itself has to address this uh, and they're trying but yeah I mean, I, I want them to try a, harder. Yeah. Right. I, I just did an episode
0: on suicide, um, last week and I went to the be the one, two movement, be the one, two.com. And I noticed in some of the materials they had, yeah. there was a specific, uh, pamphlet for, I think it was the Navy that talked about, you know, if you see these signs or warning signs, please go talk to somebody and, uh, the, the risk of suicide being high, right. In the military. Um, so can I ask you then you in 2009, you were wounded. When you were talking about the, <laughs> the advances in uh, medical technology, that sort of thing, you, you actually broke your back, right? I mean, was that a – what was that?
1: what, what Replace it. Yeah. Okay, what happened? Yeah. Uh, we were uh, – I was a dog handler at the time, I'm oh. Special Operations a dog handler. So me and my dog had become a, a sore spot for the, for the enemy because we completely found all their IEDs wow before they could use them on us so they had set up an, an ambush there where they attacked our our my unit my team from two different locations separating the front and the back vehicles our tires got shot out wow and so we got to the point where we had to stop the we thought the fight was over we had changed the tires i had my body armor off my head my helmet off hat backwards pretty much like i am now wow. change a tire getting ready to get back on the back of the vehicle and the second ambush the, the baited, the baited attack actually kicked off uh, an rpg hit the back of the vehicle while we were engaging with them and threw me off um, and the throwing me off and the, the impact of the explosion, I landed on my head and my back. So wow. it, I ended up getting a TBI and uh-huh. broken back in four places or three places that I was unaware of until I got to Germany. Oh really? Uh, cause, okay. Yeah. Cause my head was their folk. I mean, I was like a bad TBI and, and they, you know, I'd, I had a history of, you know, back pain. So mm-hmm. when I, I didn't, I didn't complain about it. They didn't seem to look, uh, they were worried about my head and getting me back to get the, the cognitive treatment that I needed. Oh, yeah. And when for, I got,
0: my, for my listeners, uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury. That, that's what, yeah. Traumatic brain injury. Yeah, okay.
1: A concussion on steroids, as I like to call it. So Wow. Okay. Um, so I, I I was having trouble understanding people, what they, who they were, what they were saying. I couldn't, just to give everyone an idea of it, when I first saw my wife and kids, when I first got back tw- uh, 15 days later, I did not know who my kids were. Wow. I was like, "Who's my wife standing there with?" And people were like, "Oh shit!" Yeah. So you know, when I tried to talk, there was wiring. My my voice sounded a little bit like Charlie Brown's teacher at first. So I had to relearn how to hear myself and talk and read. And there's a, quite a bit of stuff about rewiring the brain that I, 20 years ago before the war, I would have been a, a brain damaged, you know, almost shell of myself. Okay, but we have learned through medical advancement that. Brain injuries can be treated the proper way early enough. You get me back to being as close to normal as I can be as I am now. Mm-hmm. But when I got to Germany, having not had any treatment on my back, I get there and they're like, "Well, the TBI. We want you to get up and move around, stuff like that." So we're going to get you off this stretcher. I took like four steps and hit the ground. And they're like, "Well, what's wrong?" I'm like, "I can't move my legs." And then they checked, and my back was broken three places. Wow, um, that was missed. And that's not—I don't give fault them for that. No more damage was done by that. But it, it was—it was interesting to see how that was completely unimportant to the brain injury uh, okay. and for good reason.
0: Yeah. So how, what was that recovery like then? How long? And
1: then, and, and did you go back out or was it that the point where you said, okay, I'm... Uh, well, that was my last combat okay. combat time. Uh, yeah. I went back over as a contractor a few years later yeah. uh, okay. after I got out, but um, that was my last combat time. And it took me about a year and a half to get to physical normalcy for me, you know, as normal as I was going to get. Uh, and then once the physical normalcy happened, that's when I started having the PTSD. I okay. it, I mean, it was almost, almost tied together, you know, like, all right, you're good physically. Now you, now you have to deal with everything that's been happening in your head over this, over this time. And your focus on recovery, shielded it from everybody and shielded uh-huh. yourself from it. Now there's, now there's nothing to, but this to, for my body to deal with. And it, it dropped on me hard and quick. What so, happened?
0: What, what did that look like for you or what, what, what was happening?
1: Well, I mean, other than the, I started isolating myself. Uh, Really odd thing is I would, I was moved to a desk job, which uh, I don't think had anything to do with it in the military desk work and and non-active work happens often. I I was convinced at the time I was going to get back, but -hmm. I would come home from work and it really odd. A a few of my friends had died and, but I had had friends die over the time. So I had had dealt with them in the same way. The difference was I started coming home from work and I would come home, go into the bathroom, Ball hysterically for no reason for like an hour every day, and so that that turned into me isolating myself more from my wife and kids, not getting as much sleep as I needed, which means not sleeping at all. And after about four or five days of not sleeping at all and wanting to, just not being able to, starting to have audio hallucinations at nighttime and during the day because of my you know lack sleep deprivation and the other and the the fact that I had PTSD. So those things start happening and. And I'm here to tell everyone out there that's listening, when someone says that they're hearing and seeing things, you don't realize how vivid and real it can be for the person that's experiencing it until you have it happen to you. Because wow. I'm talking about a complete betrayal of your senses to your own brain. Wow. You could not convince me there was not someone in the other room talking. And when you can't understand because you're hearing audible noise, you can't, your brain has a way of filling in what it wants. Yeah. And you have a history of exposure to very dangerous things. You're getting. Hyper focused, you're getting fight or flight, and now you're interpreting those noises with what you consider to be danger or Uh, situations that are bad, which perpetuates your situation. Till one night, I was just acting—I mean, just completely manically unstable. My wife's like, "We got to get you. Got to get help." Okay, and I was—I was not ready to admit I needed it, but I went to get help, and at least I went because it was in that process of going that I realized that. I did have some issues that I needed to work out.
0: Was it pretty quick in getting the help that you, you know, you, I mean, once you were able to kind of start talking and processing it, was that an immediate
1: Mm -hmm. relief or was there, what was that like? No, it was, it was actually, I mean, you're starting, now you're dealing with feelings and things that you've been hiding and and burying. It was, it was worse at first. I mean, first it took me a little while to find a therapist I was comfortable with. Yeah, Uh, I went through just, I did what a lot of people don't do. Just the first one didn't work out. The second one didn't understand me. The third one was just too new and didn't, You know, there was no link. Fourth one, I I hit. But the only reason why I was able to find a therapist that I could work with is because I kept going back and getting new ones. It was me that decided to keep with the process. If a therapist that you're with doesn't work for you or doesn't link, that's okay. No harm, no foul. But don't quit. Go to another one. Find someone that can reach you. I was can, talking about there, there's
0: a, there's a lot of evidence around that. Yeah. The, the, the rapport or the trust in the therapist, the way that you, I don't know how it doesn't really even matter. The therapist modality as much. Um, if you have that mm-hmm. bond, cause you're going to need to open up and feel like you can be
1: vulnerable and trust. Right. So I love that that's yeah, you, a, you can go through the, you can go through the motions of the therapy, right? But if you don't believe that the person you're talking to understands and really cares or can identify with what you're explaining, then you just feel like you're explaining friggin' you know, astrophysics to to a to a four-year-old yeah i mean how can i explain to someone what it's like to want to go back to the most horrible situation humanity has yeah. you know war is terrible it's horrible nobody understands why we want to go back even we don't so when we try to explain to someone who doesn't understand it or at least hasn't given us any evidence that they do try to understand generally we'll just shut them out yeah so got to find someone that you can trust and even if the person doesn't understand where if you trust them stick with them. yeah because they'll still be able to help you they they understand the, the physiological mechanisms of what's going on so then i was they- curious yeah I,
0: well I'm, and I'm curious to know what you so then as far as what worked for you i mean there's there's you know there's exposure response technique there's emdr there's i mean what did you kind of go through a lot of different
1: um types of therapy or did what worked for you well i got sent to get medic medicated which okay mistake which was a mistake for me it was a mistake it did just it wasn't good um i went through more of the the psycho psycho psychoanalyzing myself because like i told them i don't want to be fixed all the way i knew i was damaged coming into the military i mean Mm. i got child i got a childhood and mom issues just like everyone else yeah like i just want to be fixed to pre-ptsd and i think that's something that has to be done through through psychoanalysm and and that that method because you you get back to what this is where i was okay Okay, And I don't, I don't need to talk about all my childhood stuff because I don't think my childhood had anything to do with it. It was obvious what my mechanism of injury was and what caused it. Whereas if you go in a lot of those other therapies, they're, they're not focusing on what is the cause. They're focusing on the, the effects right and left. You know? So um, yeah. I was focused on wanting to get back to being the man my wife married, the kid, okay. guy that my kids looked up to, the man. And I I've had a focus, and I think that's why it worked for me. Yeah, Had I not, not a focus, if I didn't know what to do, then I probably would have needed the whole therapy thing where you're dealing with all the depression, you know, years of depression that I had that I didn't know I had, Sure, you know, self-doubt and, and, you know, all the stuff that, that I think a lot of guys have that they just don't realize that they've got going on. i say, yeah, good old men's issues in
0: general. I mean, that's, uh, I I always, um, make the the comment I felt called to get into this work to work with guys and guys don't go to therapy by nature. So, you know, it's, it's tough, right? So that's, that even right. yeah, makes it even more, harder for uh, somebody in that was in your position. Um, do you feel like, I, I'm kind of curious now, do you feel like that hyper awareness is now still a part of you? I mean, is there a way that you view that now as a, as a, as a positive?
1: No, I wouldn't say it's a positive. I say that it is, it is a, now I'm aware of it. Okay. Um, here's, here's the bad news for anyone out there listening who thinks that you can cure yourself of this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's never going to go away. Your experiences in your life and and certain things that happen and remember i've got a tbi so i've had my brain has had to be rewired and re you know i don't have a brain operating at the normal way anymore okay so i have moments where things start to get too much and it rears its ugly head again the yeah. difference is now i have myself able to identify and have tools to you know mitigate and handle those things when they happen early before it gets to be too much yeah I said, is, oh go ahead no, no, no. Oh, I
0: your, the the awareness. I mean, I know that that can, for somebody that isn't working on that, that can sound like one of these ambiguous, fluffy terms. But I mean, just being able to note and, and, and have awareness in that moment that this is my feeling. Because I, I don't know if you kind of do, do you do some mindfulness work there where it's like, okay, hey, this is just a thought. I'm going to move this thing through. Yes. Perfect.
1: Yeah, you have to, because otherwise you start, you start judging. It's like, all right, the, the catch-all, the catch-all trap of, have you ever thought about suicide? Right. Now, it is one of the worst questions in the world to ask someone because we, and you as, you as a person in the medical community, and I know this, everyone has. Yes. It's not it, whether you've thought about it. It's whether you've thought about it as an option and planned it yeah. or started planning. And yeah. people don't realize that. They get so afraid of the question that some people really think, if I've ever thought about suicide, that means I'm, there's something wrong with me. So they don't tell anybody. Yeah. So it's like, hey, be careful. Because everyone's thought about suicide. Yeah. Everyone in high school got so upset when they got broken up with, oh, I just want to die. That's yeah. thinking about suicide. So you have to understand what, they're, what you're being asked to identify. Have you thought about it to the point where it became uncomfortable or an issue for you morally inside? That's mm-hmm. what they're asking because that'll turn on you and go from a thought to a plan to an action very quickly yeah. if you're not careful.
0: Yeah, so I want to say this too, because I mean, my audience has heard me talk about this before, but I know when I, when I, you know, put your name out there, it's going to bring a whole new uh, bunch of people to me. Cause uh, you know, I love all this. You've got a, you've got a nice reach. And I am a huge fan of wherever I get to speak. I love to talk about, there's a concept called inappropriate thought syndrome. And mm-hmm. there are three tenets of that. One is that we all have irrational, inappropriate, uh, angry, whatever thoughts. And then uh, that's the first one. Number two, just because we have the thoughts doesn't mean that we're going to we are that person or we're going to act on them. And then number three is thought suppression doesn't work. So, I mean, I love, uh, and this one kind of freaks my wife out a little bit is, uh, you know, um, my kids now will, they'll, They'll point out at the dinner table if our little dog's walking around with the, her little teeny legs. You know, anybody ever thought that you could just snap those like a chicken bone, right? And then it's like, you know, yeah. the horse, right? Oh, oh my God, God, they're
1: gonna be serial killers. Exactly right. <laughs> and it's like,
0: well, no, yeah. I mean, you know, or or you know, scooping the watermelon out, and you know, hey, that would, you know, that looks like an eyeball, whatever it is, or or the people that are driving down the road and I could just do this. And, you know, everybody has yeah. the thoughts, yeah. but it doesn't mean you're gonna do it. And then telling yourself that, oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought that. I always say that your brain, you know, then has a little sign that says, What this? You know, when you when you're saying, I can't think right, right. in that, that PTSD.
1: Well, of like- it's also, it's also, I think, I think it has to do with people when like, when you have that moment where you realize that's an inappropriate thought. Yeah. You, when you think back, how many times did I had that thought before that I didn't use thought suppression Yeah, because it was just a thought that came and went, it was yep. no big deal. Yep. Now I'm all of a sudden going to be riddled with guilt over all the times that I thought, you no, know, if, if only I had a flamethrower, I could get rid of all the Eagles fans in the world, right? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's still, it doesn't make you a bad person, right? I mean, you shouldn't go back and feel guilty about it because remember the difference between the people who have those thoughts and the people who are damaged and those are signs is the difference between believing and acting upon there the random go. thoughts our brain has at any given part of the day.
0: Yeah. Cause it, boy, the brain, I always like to say, sit there and just observe your thoughts as an, you know, for 30 seconds and they will go all over the place. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the brain and the the thought process. The human, every human brain, it, it it's got to be phenomenal what goes on in the brain if you're able able to look at it and record. Because I could I could tell you if you recorded my brain before I was injured, uh-huh. it'd be like There's something wrong with this guy. Okay, but if if you were if it, but now I realize that everyone has the, the yeah. things that go on. I mean, don't you don't we're human beings. Yeah, you know I, I have to you ask have that, control yeah. over our, our actions, may
0: not our thoughts. So there's one one thing that I think about now um after talking with a couple of guys and then I heard it actually on one of these audiobooks where um uh you know whenever I go into a restaurant now I'm you know I've had multiple people tell me that they when they have had PTSD like symptoms especially from war where they feel like they have to sit in a way where they can always see all the angles or they can I mean is that kind of something that you 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 deal with?
1: It, absolutely. Uh, when I walk into a room um I'm more aware of my finding the exits, taking a snapshot of the room. It's something that I did as a, as a trained necessary mindset in my old job. But now it's become a part of me where I have to deal with the fact that it could send me down a road. So I'll do things like, no, I'm going to sit with my back to the door okay, because I have to learn to deal with that and not let that control what I'm doing. I'm at a, I'm at my, family's house for Thanksgiving. I am. I am. There's no one here. That's a threat to me. Mm. And if they are me being friggin' all postured up in the corners, not going to stop that from happening. So yeah. let me not let the thought and the, and the actions control my, my situation. Let me make a stand against them by saying, Nope, I'm going to sit with my back to the door and I am not going to go check to make sure all the windows are locked. And I'm not going to, you know, walk through my house before I go to bed and do a security check. Yeah. And I'm not going to get up when I hear something at night and go check it out because I know that I have dogs and kids in the house who make noise at night. Yeah. And, I, um, and I know that statistically I'm not going to die by a home invasion. So this is how I have to mitigate and not let those thoughts and those you know, injuries and moral injuries get out of control yeah. By feeding them and allowing them to be the ones in control. And that, and that right there is the summary of why it
0: is important to go get help. Because I mean, you know, if you let that stuff go unchecked, then you are going to probably put a pretty big wedge in with a spouse or, um, mm-hmm. and
1: you know, you're going to live in that world in your head. Right. Right. And your, your perception becomes your reality if, if not controlled.
0: Yeah. Hey, I told you I would take half an hour. I've taken an hour. I really, uh. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for your time, yeah. Jeff. Oh, yeah,
1: no, 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 I can go on with you forever, man. It's, I know, uh, me too. All
0: right, well, okay, I want to do a follow because we didn't even, I would love to talk more about your time when you, I mean, when you on on the missions and, and kind of the, the mental aspect of that. And I would love to talk about that uh, at another time if you're open to that.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Send me, send me next time you have some time and and uh, I'll, I'll come right back on, we'll talk about hey, it. Right. So all right, so plug
0: your, so your podcast is Changing Hearts and Minds. It's on the uh, Change Your Point of View podcast network,
1: yeah. Right. Change your POV. So if you're on Apple, if you're on yeah. Apple and you've got to search for my show, you've got to search for Change Your POV because it's on the same RSS feed as the network. So oh,
0: I see. Okay, but I, I want to read a little bit of this and and kind of digging through your bio. I love this. So your show is about military history and veterans' issues from PTSD and suicide, motivating others. But then you also you go on other podcasts, and I like how you've been read here. And at first, I didn't understand. You know, I was anticipating. You know, it was going to just be this intense, you know, serious uh, dialogue. But you talk about. Um, You've been on shows of pop culture, true crime, comedy shows, you do a lot of public speaking, corporate seminars, uh, leadership and team building. And now that I know that you come from this uh, creative background, you know, you've played. That the makes league sense, league, huh? go, yeah, it's, it's a it's a great um, multi-tool player. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just I'm beyond grateful that you came on. And uh, I love your your mission of what you're doing and, and kind of trying to uh, break the stigma, because I mean, I said it a little while ago, but it's hard enough to get people just to come into therapy at times. And, you know, and I think we joke a little bit off air where people will say to me, you know, when they find out I'm a therapist, they're like, yeah, I don't know, I probably don't need therapy. I mean, you know, do you feel like uh, pretty much everybody needs it? And I'm like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I've already been diagnosing you for about five minutes, you know?
1: Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's the truth too, though. It, it is a true. Everyone could use a little bit of therapy. Yeah,
0: so thank you so much for coming on. I will plug this thing big time sure. and I, I can't wait to have you back on. And um, I really appreciate your service that you provide, you provided and that you're thank providing you. now. So thanks a
1: lot, Jeff. My pleasure and thank you. Thanks for having me on
2: Flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind is wonderful. Elastic waste and rubber ghost. I'm floating past the midnight hour. They push aside. The chance is yours to take